We're in Colossians chapter 3 as we continue a verse-by-verse study. If you're just joining us on the internet or here this morning, we've been going through the book of Colossians and we're coming up to chapter 3 on a section that's dealing with the family. And let me start off with just telling you a personal experience that I had just now. I mentioned this even on the uh, Facebook uh, devotional on Friday that the last couple weeks ago we had had rain one night, a little bit of wind, it didn't seem like much. And I'm backing out of my driveway and I'm not paying much attention, but others looking down the street, making sure I don't back into traffic. And as I'm backing out, all of a sudden I'm thinking to myself, something over here was out of the ordinary. And I look and the tree, which is about a 25 foot tree in my yard, it was laying on its side. That's a little bit abnormal. And there it was right by the sidewalk. And I'm so thankful when it fell, it didn't fall on my neighbor's brand new fence. But it fell the other way, right into the middle of my yard. And as you look at it, the strange part about this tree, which had buds on it, which had some apples on it this past season, when it came out of the ground, again, there wasn't tremendous wind, but it fell over. It snapped right basically ground level. If you notice the hole, none of the roots came up. And it was, it was because I found out that as the guy came and he cut the tree up, he said that in this tree, which is about this big, there was only one section for an extended period of time that showed any sap throwing, uh, flowing through it. The rest was totally dried out already. And so he says this tree was dying from the inside out, and it wasn't strong enough, and so it didn't take much to snap off on the roots. Just to add to the story, yesterday I dug out the roots by myself. I pulled out a six-foot root by hand. Okay. <laughs> That's how bad these roots were. And so it didn't take much to top them. It struck me that oftentimes this is what happens to us as Christians. When the sap isn't flowing spiritually, all of a sudden we become weak. And we might look good on the outside. We might even be leaf-bearing. We might even have some of the fruit of apples. And it might not look bad, but inside we're drying up. And without that real abiding in Christ, it doesn't take much to topple us over. In fact, some people have toppled over during COVID, which didn't hit them, but it hit society. And because they weren't rooted in Christ the way they ought to be, some believers have just toppled. Some homes can topple just as easily. Some homes who aren't rooted in Jesus Christ, it doesn't take much. All of a sudden, the winds come. doesn't need to be a great wind, but the difficulty of the time divorce, fractured families and relationships, parents and kids at odds with one another. I challenge you to think this through, that you and I need to make sure our families are rooted in Christ, that we are following the Word of God, otherwise we become weak from the inside out. Our families become weak. The next generation may not stand for Christ if you moms and dads aren't rooted in Christ. And so in the text that we've been talking about the last three weeks, it's talking to families. God in his wisdom said families in 2020, they need encouragement. They need direction. They need to know how to be rooted in Christ. And so after he's talked about how important Christ is in chapter 1 and 2, talked about him being our creator, our completer, the one that we need to make preeminent, he gets into the area of how this looks in your homes. He's talked to the, to already to a group of people. As you looked at the text previously, he said some comments to the wives, which we looked at two weeks ago. He said, wives, then you need to submit to your husbands as is fit in the Lord. He said, and we looked at it last week, to the husbands. He said, husbands, love your wives, be not bitter against them. Again, that study we did last week, you can go and check it out for yourself and glean what you can. Where we're at today is the two sentences that are talking about kids and their parents. 
In fact, he addresses the kids before he does the parents. Now, you might be saying, well, Pastor, if you're going to be talking to the kids, why did you send so many of them out? Well, we'll talk to the parents, we'll talk to the teens, and hopefully you'll pass this on to the kids. But when he talks to the kids, what's really strange is he starts off in verse 20 and he says, children. The reason that I think it is so strange is that was so abnormal for that time. We don't have other ancient literature in the world at that time that is directed to kids. We have comments that are made about kids, about how kids should be silent, about how kids should work hard. There are some philosophers that make comments about how parents should make sure they have their kids under control. There are some comments about how kids are just becoming rebellious. They don't listen to parents. They're not respectful anymore. That was from a philosopher from about 300 B.C., not somebody in 2020. And so it's very abnormal that what God would do is God would say, I'm going to talk to the kids, which shows that God values teenagers. God values young people. God says that you are important elements within the local church, that I'm going to talk to you and speak to you, and that you need to hear from me because I have something special for you who are kids, you who are young people. And so we notice, first of all, when we open up this verse, that it is a radical statement for that time. But it's a statement from the mouth of God to the young people. We want to make a comment and notice this, that this is what he says is for all children in the home. It's the plural, children. And he's talking to all of them, not just a certain age group, not just to a certain, uh, a certain group that is uh, gender or, or in a certain vocation. In fact, the term that he uses... He uses techno, it would be like you and I saying youth, children, kids. It isn't the idea of toddlers or infants or teens. It is not age specific. It's a very general term. When he uses that term, he is going to basically refer to anyone, as they would understand back in that time, anyone who isn't of legal majority. In particular, those who aren't old enough to sign a contract, those who aren't old enough yet to get married, those who aren't old enough to, uh, at that point, to be on their own. So he's talking to those, if we bring it to modern day, those who are in the teen years, those who are elementary years. He's including them all. And he's referring to them and talking to them, has this message, and he says to the kids that here's what I want you to do. Now we start in this morning, we're looking at verse 20, but I want to take you back a little bit further because he's already talked to everybody in the church which would have, as, as we now know, would have included the kids. Earlier he says, for all of you. And then now he says, and particularly for those who are kids. And so let's go back a little bit to the all of you. And he talks and includes the young people in that. And with that in mind, what the first thing God says to you young people is you need to put God first in your life. How do I know that? Well, he mentioned it chapter 1, verse 18, where he says that what you need to do is you need to make Christ preeminent. This is his statement that he's making to everybody in the church, which we now know includes the teenagers and the kids. He is saying to everyone, make sure you recognize Christ who is all in all. Christ who is creator of the world. He is to be preeminent, to be exalted in your life. Chapter 3. He's developed some other thoughts to the everyone in the church. He said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That is, welcome the word of God into your life. Make sure that it is, it is there and it's guiding you and directing you and you are, you are 
putting a lot of abundant time, rich time, into the Word of God. So putting God first means, teens, you're reading the Word of God. Teens, that means that you're going to follow the Word of God, that you're letting the Word of God guide you, direct you, dictate how you should speak, what you should be doing, just like the rest of us should be doing. You're included in that. He's also mentioned in verse 17 of chapter 3, whatsoever you do, do all in the name or the glory of Jesus Christ. So teenager putting God first says, okay, the way that I play the ball game, the way that I play in the, in the band, the way that I, whatever I do, I am supposed to be glorifying Christ, giving it my best, doing, doing it with the proper attitude, the way I conduct myself in the house. I should be doing it for the glory of Jesus Christ. I can glorify Christ. I can exalt Christ as a 13-year-old, as a 16-year-old, as an 18-year-old. I am able to magnify him. In fact, if you look at the passage that is talking to Tekna, to all young people, he says that you're supposed to conduct yourself in a certain way because it pleases the Lord. You can please the Lord. God is watching you. By the way, that well-pleasing is the same word that God used of Jesus Christ when he says that Jesus Christ, this is my son who is well-pleasing. God watches you. God is observing you. God wants to know, are you pleasing to me the way you conduct yourself? So techna. Okay, we're talking to all of you in that age group. You're to put God first. And then the specific, very personal message God has for you is you're to listen to your parents. You're to listen to your parents. Well, we read that in verse 20 where he says very simply, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. The idea of this, idea, of this word of obeying your parents comes from a combination of two words. The two words in the original, one is under, one is to hear. You're to hear under. You're to obey. You're to listen. You're to follow their orders, their instructions, their, their guidance that they give you. Now, in that, in that word that's used here, it's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not just, okay, if you think about it, if you want to do it. This is a command from God Almighty to you, in particular this morning in our crowd, the teenagers. God is speaking to you, and he is saying to you, I am ordering you that you listen to your parents which would include not only obedience, but respect your parents. Now, in Ephesians 6, in the twin passage, he includes the word of elevating your parents, respecting your parents. So you're supposed to listen to, you're supposed to be respecting your parents, a command from God to you who are teenagers in our audience today. And God says it in this passage, but it's not the first and only time he says it. God, this is so important because God repeats this multiple times. We go all the way back to the Old Testament. Go all the way back to when he's giving the, what we know, the Ten Commandments. He says, hey, listen, this is something I have for the young people. Honor your father and your mother. He says it again, repeated it, because it was so important. Honor your father and your mother in Deuteronomy. He said it again in Leviticus. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. He's made the comment, even years later, generations later, hear my son your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Listening, respecting. He said it again. A wise son hears his father's instruction. 
He made the comment in the New Testament. I referred to it just a, a few moments ago. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment. And God has given this generation after generation after generation, saying and giving to young people, especially those who are in homes that claim to be following him, especially to those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ. He is saying to you who are born-again teens, you need to obey and respect your parents. God's command. God's command that is very clear. Now, when we look at it, we understand this is important to do. Very important because God commanded it multiple times. We know that this is something that is for all of you, not just some of you, because it says, techna plural, inclusive to all of you. We know this is to be done towards both your parents. Catch it. He says, obey, listen to your parents, plural, not just your dad or not just your mom. You're to be listening and respecting both of them. That's your responsibility before the Lord, that you're to be giving them both honor and respect. We know as well this includes all areas of your life because he says, obey your parents in all things. That includes the assigned chores, that includes the standards that they set, that includes the curfews they may put, that includes the standards they say for your dating, that includes their rules for friendship, their rules for keeping what you're supposed to be doing as far as your room and the house. That, that, that's inclusive in all things. That you are obligated by the Father God in heaven that you respect and obey your parents in all areas of your life. Now, we look at all this and say, wow, this is total, this is a lot. But then he adds all the time. That is, do this over and over and over. Don't just do it on Sunday. Don't just do it on the day you want something from mom and dad. Don't just do it that, you know, when others are watching, this is to be your attitude. This is to be your response on a regular basis. This is to characterize you. That you as a young person are, are seen by others, are, are seen by your parents as one who is respectful and obedient. This is God to you. This is his message specifically. And then let me add to it, not only is this God's message, this is God's example. Jesus Christ did this himself. Jesus Christ, who is the completer, the creator, makes it very clear in Scripture. We looked at it just a couple weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That Jesus Christ submitted. So don't think that submission is wrong. Jesus did it. He submitted to the Father. He made it very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses, verse 3. That Jesus submitted to the Father even as men should submit to Christ. Even as wives to their husbands. Submission is not a bad thing. It's a good thing for orderliness. And, and uh, a home that, is, uh, that has no chaos and corruption. A home that is rooted in Christ. Jesus Christ not only submitted to the Father, but in this life. Right after that episode where he was lost for those few days in Jerusalem, and Jesus said to his mom when she asked, why did you do this to us? He said, don't you know, I must be about my father's business. They didn't understand. They didn't get it all together. Even to them, it says that he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. If Jesus Christ would submit himself to his earthly parents during that time that he was in the, in the uh, explanation of Tekna, then you have to do the same. Even if your parents don't 
always understand. Even if your parents don't always get you, you still need to be respectful like Christ was. This is Christ-likeness in your life, young person, teenager. This is what God's saying to you. This is his message to you. Okay, um, before I go any further, we need to ask this question. Is there ever a time that a techna is allowed by God not to do exactly what parents are saying? I think there is, but it's, it's so rare. It's definitely not in the homes of, of those present here today. But you remember, we ought to obey God rather than men. And he highlights, when Jesus is teaching, he li- highlights that there's going to come a time that parents will be against kids when it comes to the idea of following Christ. They will be told they can't follow Christ. They shouldn't get born again. They shouldn't serve the Lord. And Jesus says there's coming, there's going to be times when some parents will say, you don't serve Jesus. You stop following Jesus. Then, and only then, seems to be the time that he's predicting when you have to choose between your faith in Christ and following parents that there's a conflict that you say, I need to follow Christ. Now, that doesn't mean, please don't run with this and say, well, I think that Jesus is leading me to stay out until midnight tonight. Okay, that doesn't fall into this category. Okay, the category that we're talking about is, are you going to believe in Christ, read your Bible, pray, and be a true disciple? And your parents say, no, you can't do that anymore. No, you can't read your Bible. You have to choose. And when you choose to follow Christ, remember, you suffer the consequences with rejoicing. You say, this is what Christ has put me in. This is how I will follow and serve Christ. You do what Daniel did. When Daniel was asked to do something that was absolutely contrary to the Word of God, Daniel was still respectful. He took the consequences. His three friends, still respectful. They said, we will still do what we know we have to do, even if it means we're in the fiery furnace. And so you follow the Word of God only when the, uh, absolutely when you are told to denounce Christ, to get rid of your faith, you have to choose Christ. That is so rare. That is not your experience. Those of you in this auditorium, it is so unusual, but it is there. Outside of that, you're following your parents. You're doing what God says. Why? Why is it important for you to do it? Well, I've already mentioned a couple times, God commanded it. As well, I'm going to say, this is how you please the Lord. The passage says, this is well-pleasing to the Lord. This is how you serve Christ. As well, if you don't, you are indicating you are still operating as by unsaved or by the flesh. What I mean by that is this. In Romans chapter 1, in Romans 1, we get a description of what society, what people are like who are not believers. And he gives a general idea, just a very general description. Doesn't doesn't mean every one of these specifically describes everyone who is born again, but a general explanation. He says, okay, this is the way people are as a whole. People have given up on God. They have denied the Creator. Since they did not see fit to keep God in their mind, to acknowledge Him, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. What did that include? What type of activities describes, generally speaking, the unsaved, the unbelievers? They're filled with manner, all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Then he adds this next descriptive phrase that is very typical of unsaved people. Disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I can relate. 
it was very clear that even as a young person, even as a young person, that when, when I didn't hear the gospel, it was in my mindset that what I need to do is my own thing. And I thought that when I got to be 13 years of age, my parents were the stupidest people in the world. And as a 13-year-old, I know better. As a 14-year-old, I knew even more things than my parents did. As a, and then when I got 16 and got my license, that was it. That was it. I am totally independent for life, even though I had to rely upon my dad's gas but for, to get my car going. But a total independent attitude. Totally I'm on my own. I don't have to listen to them. I don't have to respect them. Well, that was very much part of my makeup because it came from the inside out. As an unsaved person, this was me, all about me, all about me, all about me. And not respecting, not being concerned about parents, not having to, to listen to them. And so if you, as a young person now who is born again, who is saved, you adopt that same attitude. My friend, you're adopting an attitude that's characteristic of being unsaved. You're not acting like a Christian, like a Christ-like one. For me, when I got born again, one of the first things I knew I had to change in my heart was my attitude towards my parents. That even though I still had my license, I was still 16, and I still thought I knew more than my parents, that I needed to change my attitude. Why? The Word of God clearly says, obey and respect your parents. There is another text that adds to this that is even more challenging. If you who are born again say that I'm going to adopt the attitude, I'm going to follow an attitude of not being respectful, not listening to my parents, not only are you acting as if you're unsaved, you are acting like what is predicted to be in the last days. In fact, we read in 2 Timothy 3, it says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And then he starts describing what society will be like, which sounds like 220, or 2020, excuse me. It sounds like 2020. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers. Then he adds, disobedient to parents. And then he goes on, unthankful, unholy. So if you're saying, well, I don't want to listen to my parents, I don't want to respect them, I'm going to do my own thing, then this text says... You are not only acting like the world, but you are worldly. You are acting like society as a whole. That is very typical of the last days. Then I would give you one more thought to consider. That if you are going to be disrespectful, disobedient towards your parents. And that's going to be your general makeup. That God warns that you will reap what you sow. Be sure your sin will... Okay, we're not supposed to preach that stuff anymore today. We're not supposed to preach like God disciplines. We're supposed to only talk about God is love. God is love, therefore he disciplines. Okay? For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Okay? And he warns young people. Several passages. Why? Now, these are Old Testament passages, I understand. Principle is there. Listen, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that your Lord God is giving you. Whoever strikes his father at his father or mother shall be put to death. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or mother. His blood is upon him. I am so glad my parents didn't know these Bible verses. <laughs> the, the idea goes further. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey the mother will be picked out or plucked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. 
God says, I will divinely bring a spiritual spanking into your life. He goes a little bit further. If one curses his father or his mother, his lamp shall be put into utter darkness. Then he gives the command, if you parents have a young person who is repeatedly disrespectful in Jewish society, if they couldn't get that person to turn it around and be respectful, bring them before the gates of the elders, and then there was supposed to be public discipline. Actually, execution was going to be taking place. God is serious about young people learning to respect their parents. Why is that? Because God knows that if young people don't have respect for their parents, they won't have it for others. And society as a whole will, will all of a sudden venture into a chaotic system. Uh, hello, are we there yet? Okay. And so it's very important. Now, I want you to notice just a couple other things about respecting and obeying parents. I want you to catch this. It's not easy to do. It's not easy to do. We, we parents understand and know, because we've been through it, it's not easy to do, and I'll give you the two reasons I just mentioned. Your sin nature makes it hard. Society is making it hard. But this is what a Christian is to do. We are in the world, but not of the world. We live at a different standard. God's standard for you young people Respect and obedience. We know this, okay? That for you to obey your parents, your parents need to be leading. It seems like we have come to a point in our culture where parents are afraid of their own kids. That they want to be buddies with their kids. I want to have a good relationship with my kids. I, I, I want them to talk and to have communication. But I'm still in charge of the home, not the kids. The parents are the ones that are supposed to be leading, not following whatever the kid wants to do. So this passage implies, implicitly commands the parents to lead in the home. Something else. Parents must be working in harmony together. If the kids are to listen to parents the parents must be saying the same thing. They've got to be saying the same thing. They've got to have the same standards. They've got to have the same rules. They've got to have the same structure. True incident, what happened in the NASA program back in 98 is they put together this Mars Explorer that was supposed to go to Mars and it would get all kinds of information as it orbited Mars. A very, very important process that they went through. Years of getting this orbiter created, lots of money invested in it, but there was a problem. The researchers and the engineers at NASA were putting in a different form of measurement than the researchers at Lockheed, which were also making some of the computer commands to this process. There was two engineers that caught it. They said, we did see that these two had different forms of measurement, which was going to conflict and create confusion for the computer. But they thought it would work itself out. Okay, they should have been fired. And so the thing blasted off. It went months before it reached Mars. And when it got to Mars, it had conflicting signals of measurement. So the orbiter went straight into the atmosphere and imploded. All $327 million were wasted. And just because of different commands. How many kids are getting constant different commands? And even somebody in charge recognizes it, but nobody does anything. And as a result, the kids will implode. 
It is critical that you work together. It is wrong, moms and dads. It is wrong for you to knowingly work against each other. It is wrong to say, I'm going to become the nice one. So the kids like me more than they like. And you say, well, that never happens. Sometimes parents vie for affection from their kids by working against their spouse. From a Christian point of view, let me be very blunt, that's sinful. That is wrong, parents. That means that what you have to do and to work in harmony, you've got to communicate ahead of time, what are our standards? What are we going to do now that our kids are teenagers? What are we going to do about dating? What are we going to have for standards for clothing? What are we going to have for standards for how they use the phone and the, uh, the computer equipment? What are we going to have for the standards and expectations for work and chores and other things of that sort? There needs to be communication between the parents. And when there is a conflict, you need to handle that in private, not in front of the kids. If you have a disagreement, take your time out, do whatever, but then go aside and respectfully work it out between you, but forever and always have a united front as parents before your kids. This is, the, this is implied in the passage, folk. It's very clear. Then what he does is he not only gets into implications or implied thoughts, then God turns to the dads. And he says, fathers. They're the last ones mentioned in this text. Dads, I want to talk to you. And he speaks specifically to dads of all ages. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop, literally, stop provoking your children. Stop it. Ephesians says, stop provoking them to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Stop. Now, my first question is, why does he speak to dads only? What happened to moms? Did they fall off the face of the earth back in those days? In fact, he's already just mentioned moms in the previous verse. Didn't he just say, children, obey your... Which included moms. How come he, how come he doesn't say, children, obey your... Parents, stop provoking. Moms are still there. They're still in this discussion. What happened? Could it be that he doesn't mention both parents because God knows that dads are generally more aggressive with the kids. They're not as nurturing. They're not as patient in a general truth. That dads are more demanding in a sense and are quicker to be short and harsh with the kids. Could be. Could it be that God is saying and, is, and concluded, I already said dads are the head of the home. I already mentioned this in verse 18, that the wives are to submit to follow their own husbands. So the dads are the ones who are in charge. That's been clear. So those of you in charge, and particularly you dads, you make sure that this is how you operate as a team, that together you're not against the kids. Could it be that he is reflecting upon what is normal in that culture? That in that culture, dads were, dads were definitely the ones in charge, and they were definitely brutal towards the kids. What I mean by that is this. Back in those days, there was this principle that is called the power of the father. You see it in Latin. That the dads had absolute rule throughout that Mediterranean world. The dads could do what they want with the kids. And this was legal. It was legal for the dads at that time that they could do whatever. They could make the kids work as much as they want or as little as they want. They could speak any way or treat the kids any way they want. They could hit them. They could abuse them. They could sell their own kids legally. They could even stop their children's lives. 
There is a letter that comes from one man who is away from his home. His wife has informed them that she is expecting uh, a child to be born while he's on this extended business trip. He writes back to her, and in this letter he makes comment about, I'm glad that we're having another child. It'll help provide a workforce. And then he goes on and he makes a comment that is very insightful to how dads thought it that day. He makes this comment, and I quote, If it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, expose it. To expose it means put it out in the elements till it dies. And that's what this man writes to his wife. So God is saying to the men of that era, don't you act like your culture. Don't you do what is socially acceptable in those days where you could abuse the kids. You could sell the kids. You could do anything you want with your wife and with your kids. So dads, stop provoking your kids. Or maybe, maybe the simple answer is that If we compare this text to another text, which uses the same word in the original language that is translated fathers in Colossians, but in Hebrews it's translated parents, where it says Moses' literally father hid him. We know from the account that who was also involved with hiding the mother. And so it's translated parents. It could be that simple that, that the writer is saying, when I talk to fathers, moms obviously know they're involved. But whatever the reason is, he speaks and he says, okay, as parents, what are we to do? Especially dads, what do we be cognizant of? Stop provoking your children. Now, now the idea of provoking your children is stirring them up to anger. It's the idea of frustrating them. It is the idea of irritating your kids. That's the word. That's what it means. It's it's not the idea that the Chinese had in application. I told you this before when I was on those multiple trips teaching in China. They read this verse, and they read Ephesians 6, and the Christian parents of that community or in that country, they made this application. We're not to do anything that would ever upset our children, ever. Therefore, we don't discipline our kids, ever. We never tell them, no. We never, we never do something that will cause them to be upset. And in their application, they said, we never correct a toddler, no matter what the toddler is doing. My friend, seriously, do you have to, for the, for the life of that child, do you have to say no at times? For just protection. You have to say no. And so in that, they took, the, they took the, um, the interpretation and application to such an extreme. You, you know better than that. Because you put the words all together. Stop provoking your children lest they be discouraged. He's not saying don't have any rules, don't have any standards, don't ever cor- uh, correct your children. He's not saying that. He's saying, don't treat your children in such a way that in your poor parenting, you cause them chaos, confusion, apprehension in their heart. You get them to the point that they are so discouraged that they all of a sudden they lose hope. They become sullen. They are defeated. Nothing they ever do pleases you. It's that type of poor parenting. That's what he's talking about. And he says, dads, I want to make sure that you don't do this. Stop provoking them. Can I make, a, make it a point to you see? This happens in Christian homes. 
God knows it happens to Christian soul. It was happening in the city of Colossae that he has to say stop. And he had this letter, not all letters in the, written in the New Testament by, by writers like Apostle were in the scriptures, but this one is because God knows, God knew that we would need this in the year 2020. That it would still happen that people who sit in a Bible-believing church who claim to be born again could still be frustrating their kids. After all that time, after all the generations of Christianity, some may still be operating on a level that they are frustrating their kids, defeating their kids, discouraging their kids. By the way, those type of parents who do this, they make it very hard for their kids to honor and respect them. Those types of parents make it very hard for the kids to believe and follow the Lord. If you're an overbearing parent who is always critical, the parent who is, who is of that mindset that you know, that child can never do anything right and you let them know, what do you think they think of God? They can never please Him. But if you're that type of parent who is so lenient that, that you let them do anything, give them no standards and no restrictions, that's poor parenting just as well. You're not bringing them in nurture and admonition of the Lord. What do you think they grow up thinking about the Lord? I can do anything. I can live as I want. And God doesn't care. What you do with your kids is critical to how they view God Almighty. So you don't want to be a poor parent. You want to avoid those things that frustrate, that discourage, that defeat. And by the way, can I, I know that it's talking in particular to techna, to those who are still in the home. But isn't it true of even those outside the home now? Could I still be, be guilty of frustrating and disappointing and defeating my adult children by continuing some of those same poor parenting relationships and actions to my adult kids? What are they? Okay, well, I'll let you listen and hear from some kids. There was a fourth or sixth grade Sunday school class in Brookside, New Jersey, that the teacher, wisely or unwisely, said, Kids, I want you to write something. I want you to answer this question. What might grown-ups do that upset you? And so the kids wrote down several. Grown-ups often make promises. Then they forget all about them, or else they say it really wasn't a promise. I had only meant maybe. Grown-ups don't do the things they tell us to do. Like pick up your things, be neat, always tell the truth, or be polite. Grown-ups don't listen to what we have to say. They decide ahead of time what they are going to answer. Grown-ups make mistakes, but they won't admit it. They pretend it wasn't a mistake at all or that somebody else made the mistake. Grown-ups interrupt children and think nothing of it, but get upset when I interrupt them. Grown-ups don't apologize to us kids when they do something wrong, like yell at us or say something mean to us. Sometimes grown-ups punish us kids unfairly. They get really mad over something very little. Sometimes they get mad about something they didn't tell me not to do. And it's really hard to know what they expect of me or if I, if I will upset them when they are in a bad mood. Grown-ups often talk about what they had to do when they were 11 years old. But they don't seem to stop and think what it is like to be an 11-year-old right now. How insightful, how true they are, I don't know. But I do know it's worth pausing and saying, how do I treat my kids, my grandkids? 
Am I building them up or tearing them down? If I don't want to tear them down, I want to avoid this stuff. I want to avoid being a hypocrite. I mentioned in the earlier service over the years of taking the teens on trips. There has been multiple times when the kids have talked about and said, can I talk to you privately, personally? What do I do? It's so frustrating. You preach something and my parents walk out and do just the opposite and laugh about it. But when they come to church, they're totally different. It's the hypocrisy. There's, there's times where there's uncontrolled anger. We witnessed this not, just not too long ago. Just a few weeks back, even when there was the chaos, even in our own community, where there was the chaos happening in Lancaster, that week we had taken uh, one of the church uh, vacuums to get repaired. And when we pulled up, all of a sudden we heard screaming and yelling. It sounded like a fight. And our first thought was, uh-oh, is something going on in the parking lot? And turned around and saw finally, and it included I had to get out of the vehicle. My wife's reaction was, is it safe to get out of the car? Are we being threatened? And I got out, and I observed that there was this guy who was about twice the size of me, if not more. And he was mad at his child, who was about this big. He had two kids. He pulled that one kid out of that car by the arm, and the kid was dangling in the air, screaming, yelling, hitting the child out of pure anger because somehow, some way, from, from what I understand, the kid, as he was unbuckling and stepped, he unbuckled, got out of the car seat, stepped down, and he stepped on something Dad had put on the, uh, on the floor. And it was damaged, and Dad went berserk. Have you ever done that berserkal thing with your kids? Screaming? Yelling? Oh, you didn't hit him. You're a Christian. But you yell, scream, carry on. What about the excessive, inconsistent disciplines? Where I alluded to it, that the kid doesn't know what to expect from you. That if you're in a good mood, everything's okay. If you're in a bad mood, nothing they do is right. What about the idea of nagging them? Nag, 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 nag. You hate it, but you do it to your own kids constantly. What about the idea of calling them names? You're so stupid. You're such a dummy. You just, you know, can't, can't, you, can't you use your brain ever? What about the idea of being hypercritical? Does it ever happen that when our kids go out of our home, we still are hypercritical of what they do? Well, that really genders a good relationship. They want to come home and visit when we're going to criticize them for the way they raise their kids, what they do, and this and that and the other thing. What about that idea of comparing your kids to others? Have you ever grown up in, a, in an environment? Why can't you be like your brother? Because I'm not. I'm not them. Why can't you be like your sister? Because I'm not that person. God made me different. What about this idea of putting unrealistic goals, pressures on your kids? And I use the silly illustration. I've shared this with you before, but it gets the point across that when we were out, not in this building, we were over there one day when our youngest was still preschool. He came here, and my wife, they were going to help me with some things around the office, and I told him, go hang up your coat. It was wintertime. Go hang up your coat. And he came back into my office, all smiles. I said, did you hang up your coat? No. Go out there and hang up your coat. 
So he ran out there, came back a few seconds later, semi-smiling. Did you hang up your coat? No. Where's your coat? It's laying on the floor. Okay, buddy, let's go. So we march out there. In all of my mind, I'm telling him, I said, you disobeyed me. This is direct disobedience. You're going to have to be disciplined for it. Da-da-da-da-da-da. We're going to take care of this. But first, you're going to hang up your coat. And so he picked up his coat, and he looked up at the hangers. He's this big. The hangers are up here. It was after that that we got those, those hooks <laughs> where kids could hang up their coats. Have you ever given your kid an unrealistic chore and disciplined them, but they couldn't achieve it no matter what? How, much, how frustrating is that? You're told to do something that you can't possibly do? What about the idea of never listening to your kid? You're busy. You've got lots of things to do. Work and house and car and all those things. It's just so busy. Like, like this preacher, nationally known preacher, that said his life in the midst of one of the, the phases of his ministry, it was busy, busy, busy. He said that I was so busy that I was only home for short times between my church and preaching elsewhere. He said, here's what was happening. I was snapping at my wife, our kids, choking down my meals, irritated by unexpected interruptions throughout every day. I remember after supper one evening, the words of our youngest daughter, Colleen, she wanted to tell me something important that had happened to her at school that day. She began to speak very rapidly. Daddy, I want to tell you something that I really will talk fast because I know you don't have time. It was only then, trying to understand what she said, that I suddenly realized the frustration that my wife had been expressing. My kids were expressing, and now my daughter. How the family must have been experiencing my own rapid pace that they couldn't understand what was going on. So I said to her, Honey, you can tell me, and you don't have to do it in such a hurry. Go ahead, let's sit down, and you can say it slowly. She smiled a huge smile and said excitedly, then you will listen to me slowly so you will hear all I have to say? What about you're the overprotective parent? You're the one that doesn't want them to have difficulties, but you're so overprotective they don't have any life experiences that they could learn from. There's moments that they may have to crash to learn. There's moments you have to trust and expand those opportunities as they get older. Well, maybe you're the domineering parent. And you're convinced that you are going to make all their decisions, even though they're now 42 years old, you still will make their decisions for them. What about if you're the one who shows the favoritism? What about if you're the one who is neglecting them? Because busy. What about... You're the one who shows no interest in their interest. Do you think that's frustrating? When they have an interest in music, you're not a musician. You don't care. But you make it known you don't care. They're athletic. You're not. And you show no time, no interest in what they're interested in. You can't even make it to a single game, a single concert thing that they're in. Because... You, you're too busy. What about the parents who never affirm their children? Who never tell them how precious they are? 
who the kids are wondering, what good am I? Like the preacher who wrote about how he had heard a dad in the church say to his son when they were out, on a, out at a church picnic, the son did something that frustrated the dad, something about spilling the food, and the dad said to the son, you're good for nothing. And the preacher found himself doing the same thing to his son two weeks later. And he said, I made the comment to my son, you're good for nothing, in a moment of anger. And then he said, it, it just hit me when a few days later, I looked at my son who had disobeyed and I said, what are you good for? And my son looked up, I'm good for nothing. And the dad said, at that moment, my heart was so pricked by the Spirit of God. He said, no, that's not true. You're good for hugging. And he grabbed the kid. He said, from then on, he said, from then on, there was a change in their relationship. That that kid was affirmed. When they would have their, what are you good for moments? I'm good for hugging. People need that. People need to know that their parents appreciate them are proud of them, that their parents love them. Or maybe you're one of the many of us who never heard that said, and you remember that. You look back and you say, there was something missing. I never heard it. Well, then say it. Then don't repeat that. Do you ever hear of the gentleman, David Simmons? He's with the Lord now. He played for the Dallas Cowboys a number of years ago. And um, he also played for the, for the St. Louis Cardinals and the New York Jets, or Giants, excuse me. Um, but when he played for, for the Cowboys, he was under Landry, who made a difference in his life. But he talks about how he needed to have a difference made. And he talks about his family. His father was a military man who, with that military mentality that his dad brought home was very demanding of him. Part of it was his grandfather. His dad's own dad was a lumberjack who was very cruel, brutal, and often beat up. David Simmons' dad. His grandfather was known in the one town where he grew up that he had such a vicious temper that one day when the pickup truck didn't start, he took a sledgehammer and totally destroyed the pickup because it wouldn't start. Okay, so dad grows up in that home Dad then enters the military and is training others and very demanding. And dad brings that same concept home to his son. And he goes on, he wrote about and told about the story. He says, David recalled how his dad was always pushing him with harsh criticism to do better. His dad's approach was to never permit his son to feel any satisfaction from his accomplishments. But instead, he would remind him that there are always new goals ahead. For instance... When David was a little boy, his dad gave him a bicycle, unassembled. And with the single command that he put it together himself in such a period of time, if he ever wanted to ride it. After Dave struggled with the difficult directions in many parts to the point of tears, his father came into the room and said, I knew you could never do it, you're too stupid. And then, his dad then, with mother's urging, put the bike together. When David was playing football in high school, his father was unrelenting in his criticisms. In the backyard of his home, after every game, he recalled how his dad would bring him out when he got home and go over every play that David played in and point out his errors. He wrote about it saying, Most boys got butterflies in the stomach before the game. I got them afterwards. 
Facing my father was more stressful than facing the opposing team or my coaches. So by the time he entered college, David desperately hated his father and his harsh discipline. He chose to play football at the University of Georgia because of all the schools that offered him a scholarship. Georgia was the one that was farthest from his dad. After college, David became the second-round draft pick of the St. Louis Cardinals, and Joe Namath was that year's, the Cardinals' first-round draft pick. But David was so excited that he had been chosen in the second round, he called home to share this good news, and his father, when he told them that he had been picked in the second round behind Joe Namath by the St. Louis Cardinals, his dad's response, how does it feel to come in second place? It took David years to overcome the anger and the hurt his father had created. And only through Christ did he experience any victory at all. What have you done to your kids? How have you exasperated them? You say, well, Christians don't do that. Recent family conference where they had numbers of Christian parents from evangelical Bible-believing churches, there was a group of 42 teens. They asked the question of those 42 teens, can you approach your dad to talk to your dad about serious issues? Of those 42 teens, one girl said she could. They did another study. Gallup conducted this amongst those who claimed to be Bible-believing homes. They took a 1,000 kids, teenagers. They miked them. The families knew they were doing this for a 24-hour period. And they just wanted to see interaction between Christian teens with their Christian parents. And what they found out at the end of that 24-hour period and putting all the different results together, they found out that 42% never heard a single word of praise when the parents knew they were being recorded. They found out that 50% never hugged their kid, never touched their kid, didn't give them a kiss. They found out that right around 50% never heard in those 24 hours, I love you. When they knew they were being monitored, they still couldn't step up to the plate. No wonder God says, parents, stop frustrating your kids. Well, we know it's important. We know it's important because God commanded us not to do it. God is concerned about the well-being of our children. Your children are a stewardship, not a possession. They aren't, they're my kids, but they're not my kids, they're God's kids. They're on loan from God to me to bring them up so they serve God. Not so they do what I want. Not so they become what I want, that they become what their creator maker wants them to be. What do we know? How you treat your kids is how they will be for life. I already illustrated it. One generation, another generation, a third generation afflicted by hatred. That only Christ broke that bondage. What you do with your kids, it'll determine what they do with Christ. How they will serve him or not serve him. This is an important topic, folk. Because you parents, you are the greatest singular influence upon your kids. Time alone tells us that. Time alone in the modern American family goes this way. 1%, even when we're running the normal weekday ministries, we still get the kids only 1% of the time here to be an influence on them. 1%. School gets them 18% of the time. You got them the rest of the time. You're the singular greatest influence for Christ upon your kid's life. But it won't happen 
It won't happen if you're frustrating them. It just won't happen. That bastion of conservative thought, Harvard University, did a study of American families. This is about 15 years ago that they did it now. When they did this study, they were looking for what type of influences will create well-balanced young people who are socially competent, that they will, they will produce, they will be a, a positive impact upon their community. This is Harvard University, liberal, liberal school, that concluded the top four impacts upon kids to help them to be well-balanced, good citizens. Number one, fathers who provide firm, fair, consistent discipline. Number two, mother supervision and companionship in the daytime. Number three, parents who demonstrate affection for one another before the kids. Number four, families spending regular time of activity together, eating or playing together regularly. I'm surprised they published this. This just totally backs up what the scripture says. Compassionate leadership has to be coming out of the Christian home. So what do we note? Okay, this compassionate leadership is to be the norm in your family. It's to be nor the norm for this church. Not the exceptional family, but the normal family. How do I know that? He talks to all parents. He's talking, fathers, all of you. He's talking about all the time. Stop provoking. All the time, stop it. Ephesians, keep on all the time, bringing them up in the nurture and encouragement. This compassionate leadership is to be displayed towards all your children. Not just one, not just two, not just ten if you have twelve. You are to be consistent in this towards all the kids. Now, I understand it's going to be different how it works because every kid is different. But they're all finish up in your home as saying, my parents provided me compassionate leadership. They were an influence for the glory of God. So what do we do with this? How do we close this out? Number one, young people, young people, you have to work on being respectful and obedient to your parents. Today, tomorrow, this week. This is what God says to you. What God says to the parents, work on compassionate leadership that the, for the kids that God has placed in your care. What it says to those of you who are growing up or grew up, and some of us didn't have this privilege. But for those who grew, are growing up or grew up with parents who are following God's word to the best of their ability, you need to thank God for them. And you should thank them for their efforts. What it means is this, for those of us who are Christian adults, it means we don't neglect to provide an example of kids respecting parents by how we treat our own parents even after years, and while we have the opportunity. After 21 years of marriage, I discovered a new way of keeping alive the spark of love that is necessary in my home and family. A little while ago, I had started to go out with another woman. It was really my wife's idea. I know you love her, my wife said, taking me by surprise. But I love you, I protested. I know, but you also love her. The other woman that my wife wanted me to visit and take out was my mom. 
She had been a widow now for 19 years, but the demands of my work and my three children had made it possible to only visit her occasionally. So that night, with my wife surging, I called to invite her to go out to dinner and for a movie. What's wrong? Are you well? My mother is the type of woman who suspects that a late-night call is a surprise invitation or some, you know, something bad has happened. I said, no, 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 Mom, everything's okay. I just thought that it would be pleasant to pass some time with you, just the two of us alone. She thought about it for a moment. Then she said, you know, I would like that very much. So that Friday after work, as I drove over to pick her up, I felt I was a little bit nervous going on a date with my mom. When I arrived at her house, I noticed that she, too, seemed to be a little bit nervous. She waited in the door with her coat on. She had curled her hair and was wearing the dress that she had worn to celebrate her last wedding anniversary. She smiled from a face that was as radiant as an angel's. As she got into the car, she said, I told my friends that I was going out on a date with my son, and they were so impressed. They can't wait to hear what we do. (laughs) We went to a restaurant that, although not elegant, it was very nice. It was cozy. My mother took my arm as we walked into the restaurant as if she were the first lady. After we sat down, I had to read the menu to her. Her eyes could only read the large print, and so halfway down through the entrees as I was reading, I lifted my eyes and saw my mom sitting there staring at me. She had this nostalgic smile on her lips. You know, it wasn't so long ago, it was I who used to have to read the menu to you when you were small. Well then, Mom, it's time you relax and let me return the favor. During the dinner, we had an agreeable conversation, nothing extraordinary but catching up on all the recent events of each other's life. We talked so much, we missed the movie. As we arrived at her house later, she said, You know what? I'll go out with you again, but only if you let me invite you and me pay the next time. I agreed. When I got home, I walked in the door, and the first thing my wife said was, How was your dinner date? You know, it was really nice. It was much nicer than I could have imagined. A few days later, my mother died of a massive heart attack. It happened so suddenly, I didn't have a chance to do anything more for her. Some days later, I received an envelope with a copy of a restaurant receipt from the same place my mom and I had dined that evening together. There was a note attached that said, I paid this bill in advance. I was almost sure that I couldn't go out with you another time. But nevertheless, I paid for two plates, one for you and the other for your wife. You will never know what that night together with me meant for me. I love you very much. At that moment, I understood the importance of saying, I love you while there is still time. To give our loved ones the time that they deserve. Nothing in life is more important than God and your family. We need to give them the time they deserve, they need. Because those things, like words and time, cannot be put off until some other convenient moment.